my guest today is Professor Emmanuel Oriol, who is Professor of Economics at Toulouse School of Economics. Her research interests include industrial organization, regulation, labor economy, collective decision making, and development economics. Welcome, Emma. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, thanks for doing this. So you have a very recent paper, uh, Reading Out the Dealers, the Economics of Cannabis Legalization. Um, and this is a very topical, um, very topical in the U.S. as well now, as you know. Uh, you say we model consumer choices for recreational cannabis in a risky environment and its supply under prohibition and legalization. While legalization reduces the profits of illegal providers, it increases cannabis consumption. This trade-off can be overcome by combining legalization with sanctions against the black market and improvements to the quality of legal products. So that is that is very intuitive. Um, the, I guess a lot of countries are struggling with what should be sort of the optimum policy <laughs> question. Uh, I don't know, I haven't really studied it in detail. In the US, different states appear to have different policies uh, and it's a mishmash of a variety of things here in the US, it looks like. And so, so, so what does your research tell you in terms of you know, sort of optimum policy that countries should be thinking about? That's a, that's a very good point. So there is only one policy of prohibition, which is forbidding things. There are many policies of legalization. And that's, that's the, the key uh, element here. So the problem is to have, and this is why we wrote this paper, is to have clear idea of what your main objective are when you uh, legalize uh, recreational cannabis. Um, but you cannot have it all. So what is wrong and what is not working very well uh, is top-down initiative, so typically the Uruguay, uh, with the purpose of um, uh, killing the black market and all the criminality that goes with it, and at the same time, controlling consumption. That is not working because, as uh, intuitive it is, if you legalize this product, automatically uh, you will have an increase in consumption, not a decrease in consumption, unless you do, of course, something else. Because before it was illegal and dangerous, the product were not certified, you can go to jail. So all these things are barriers to entry to the market of uh, cannabis. It means prices are higher and consumption is lower. So when you legalize, it, it, you can kill the mafia, you can kill uh, the black market, but it has a cost, in particular this cost is that you have to be a bit aggressive in terms of uh, the product you offer, the price strategy, at least initially, so that you clean the black market and consumption increase. So typically public policies that aim to embrace conflicting goals are uh, doomed to fail. And this is what happened in Uruguay. Uh, they license only uh, two, two tons of, uh, for the equivalent of two tons for producer, while the real market is like 50 tons. Of course, in this case, you have still a black market because you don't uh, offer enough product. This has been a bit the same with uh, the legalization in Canada. Eh? It was a top-down initiative. And the goal, again, was to uh, kill the mafia, suppress criminality, and control consumption. Uh, initially, the government had massively underestimated the, the demand, and so the stock of cannabis were not uh, large enough. There were a lot of rationing, and because of that, the black market survived. Because if you cannot find your product, then you, you, go to the, you turn to the black market. 
by contrast, the legalization of Colorado, that was a bottom-up initiative, so coming from the user of recreational cannabis, demanding legalization against the governor. Uh, uh, this uh, legalization has been successful because product uh, were, uh, of course, in large quantity. Uh, the quality was there. There are a lot of research and development, innovation. And in the end, the, pro the, the, the government was very happy because a lot of taxes were collected. So this type of uh, legalization works better than other. Uh, you can have, uh, uh, of course, legalization that control uh, the volume of um, sales uh, in cannabis, but uh, this comes with repression measure to the black market, etc. So you, you, you need to have a clear view of your objectives when you legalize. So um, I, I'm a bit confused about uh, cannabis. So uh, when we think about other things that are legal, like alcohol and tobacco, it appears, at least on the surface, cannabis is not that addictive, maybe not that problematic. Um, obviously, there are differing opinions around it. <laughs> uh, so, so in, is increasing consumption a bad thing for cannabis? So that I, me, I, I don't have a, a strong view on uh, on the use of a psychotropic substance. I am not a, a medicine doctor, so. That's true that when you review the literature, and that's why also we wrote this paper, the medical literature, there are very few downsides of consumption of cannabis for adults. For instance, we are not aware of any overdose, uh, I mean, a death that will be due to an overdose of cannabis consumption. Uh, there are overdose of alcohol, you can die of uh, an overdose of alcohol, you can die of an overdose of cocaine or heroin. Cannabis, you can't, apparently. Uh, also, it doesn't seem to be a very addictive substance, contrary to tobacco, for instance, that is super addictive, or alcohol. Um, it, so, in the end, it seems, well, this is a conclusion of this meta-analysis uh, of the Academy uh, of Science of the United States that say that there seems to be very limited uh, damage to uh, moderate consumption of cannabis for adults, especially if you don't smoke it, because if you smoke it, and the co-use of cannabis plus tobacco is very dangerous because of the tobacco. Um, by contrast, there is an issue about young consumers. So uh, we know that the human brain is not mature until 25. So consuming cannabis, like in France, uh, the kids do it at like uh, 15, 13, it's very early too early, and it does impact, uh, it impacts memory, it impacts short-term memory, so it impacts the ability to learn, to, to memorize things. Uh, and also, it could be, a, um, it could be, a, um, it could have an impact, sorry, on the, on psychosis, on the fact that suddenly, uh, for fragile uh, brain, uh, for people that have a predisposition to be uh, schizophrenic or bipolar, it could have an impact and trigger uh, the, 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 the illness. So, my view is that we should protect kids and Ill illegal um, market, black market, is not the good way or the, even the best way or even the way to do it because criminals, they don't care to whom they sell. So, if we want to protect kids, and I think we should them to, for that, psychotropic substances are not very great for their brain. Adults, they do whatever they want. We should legalize. I think this is uh, one goal of legalization is to protect underage uh, ad, uh, uh, consumer, and that cannot be done with prohibition. So it, it sounds to me that, you know, if there's some evidence that younger, um, younger people have negative effects, 
maybe the legalization framework is more like the alcohol legalization, right? There is an age-based prohibition, uh, and then beyond that age, it becomes legal, something along those lines. Exactly. So uh, that's a very good comparison. I think in my country, uh, France, is a very good example of that. We we managed to control consumption of alcohol uh, substance. So we divided in France by half the consumption of uh, pure alcohol per, per person per year, by half, in the in the period of like 40 years. Okay, so it is possible to have a demand policy that reduces consumption, and the way we did that is by being very tough on the driving and drinking. Uh, which of course prevent people from drinking outside their home, uh, and uh, by uh, enforcing or trying to enforce the the, the ban on uh, sales for underage kids. Uh, same thing with tobacco; we cannot uh, smoke anywhere in public space. That's a way to. But prohibition, you you have none of this tool because it's illegal, so you cannot talk about the good usage of uh, cannabis. Let's say. And uh, so a, a model where, uh, me, I am in favor of, of a model where the sales of cannabis will be in recreational cannabis will be in dedicated uh, shop. So kids have nothing to do there. It's easier for the police to, to see the, that the enforcement is, is, um, is, uh, is respected. The ban is respected. Uh, and so, but that's again a question of what type of why type what type of legalization you, you aim for what are your goals but protecting underage uh, kids is certainly uh, one goal every country should have and, and uh, of course there is a huge uh, medical cannabis market too um, and that's that makes it somewhat special compared to the other products but one could argue red wine <laughs> is probably in that uh, in that category as well um, and so um, I think the initial attempts was to make it legal for medical purposes. Uh, and I think now countries are moving away from that to more general um, legalization, right? Yes, exactly. So, for instance, in Europe, um, mo most countries have uh, some legal use for uh, cannabis, although, for instance, in France, that is a prohibitionist country and it is strongly against the legalization of cannabis. Um, in France, uh, the usage of medical cannabis are so restricted that nobody is using it medically. Uh, I think in California, it was abused in the sense that it was not for medical purpose, it was for recreational purpose, but people were claiming that it was for uh, medical purpose. In Europe, what we have now is um, it's mandatory to open a market to C C CBD, which is not the psychotropic part of canna cannabis, uh, but it is uh, the relaxing part. And that's uh, the European Union imposed to every member of the European Union to uh, allow trade of uh, this substance. So France has been obliged, for instance, to open it. Um, but the, the big market is recreational cannabis in terms of buck, in terms of money much more than medical one, I think. Um, and uh, that's why uh, it's, a, it's a big economic uh, uh, fight also uh, between producer and, uh, and, and uh, government. But uh, my view is that we, we will move, all the countries in the world will move to legalization, uh, at least in OECD country. Uh, the, the prohibition is, is a really a failure. In France, we spend uh, more than one million hour men uh, of the police to arrest uh, kids that smoke in the street. Really, this is what we do. 
Um, so we are pouring water on the, on the ground. And on the other hand, we are the first consumer uh, in terms of underage um, kid in Europe. And so this, this is a failure. I mean, we, we, our, all our kids are smoking. One kid out of uh, two uh, has tried cannabis at 15 in France. So what type of policy is that? And we put a lot of money, public uh, tax, hard win taxpayer money on, on a repression that is not working. So. Yeah, I don't know much about this, Emma, but uh, CBD you mentioned, um, obviously, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of um, pain-related uh, benefits. Uh, it is becoming a lot, lot frequently available in the U.S. now. And uh, I grew up in India and, you know, I was talking to my mom and she has pain in her foot. Mm. Uh, but it is not really that frequently available in other countries. And so, so what's the status in uh, Europe uh, regarding CBD? Are people using it more frequently now? Yes, so we, we had, the, uh, in France, and the government really tried very hard to push it back, but it was imposed by the European Union. So in all co members of the European Union, you can find CBD. I mean, it's a law. Uh, the problem uh, we have in France is that many people use it uh, to smoke, uh, to get the, the relaxation and the smell of ca recreational cannabis uh, without the, uh, the hallucina. I mean, canna the cannabis and the THC is really um, something that makes you hallucinate if you take it at idols. I mean, it, has, um, uh, it, is, it distorts reality. CBD does not do that. It simply relaxes you, but it can be used in a recreational way. And so the, the French government is very concerned, rightly, I think, about the fact that people smoke it with tobacco, which is very bad. Uh, but we find a lot of uh, products that are liquid, that you can eat, that you can, um, uh, and this is relatively easy. And uh, indeed, for instance, so you have uh, people that have uh, trouble uh, sleeping at night that use it, uh, old people that have trouble eating. I mean, so there are many usages that are, um, in fact, cannabis is a fantastic uh, uh, plant. So there are more than 50 different molecules in it. It's, it's a soup of molecules, and we, we never study it rationally because of the, the prohibition, which is irrational, I think. Yeah, I would imagine humans found this very early in their progression. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly, you know, it has been used. We have trace of usage of cannabis that go back to antiquity. You know, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a smoothing. Uh, <laughs> Plant, so of course, yes, this, uh, it's not a bad psychotropic substance in this sense because it's not. Uh, yeah. yeah, like you say, it's a complex combination of yeah. molecules, and so clearly it has a lot of beneficial effects, but obviously some downside. So, mm -hmm. if through a legal framework you can take care of all the uh, all the downside, then I think it is it is really a good thing, right? Yeah, but there are dimensions that are difficult. For instance, with alcohol, uh, it's very easy to, to, to have a test to see whether you, you drink before driving. With cannabis, it's much more complex. We don't have this test right now. And we know that you shouldn't cons uh, consume some cannabis and then take the wheel huh, because you kill someone. I mean, it's like alcohol. So there are issues, um, but maybe this issue will be resolved once we admit that uh, it's legal and that we need to, to deal with it. Uh, until now, you have to make uh, some uh, blood tests. I mean, it's very expensive. And so there is no, uh, for the police, it's very hard to know whether you, you were uh, driving under influence. 
And uh, yet, uh, this, we need to have something practical if it's legal. So you see, there are many issues, um, but there are also very good, uh, very good things. For instance, Israel is a very uh, is working very hard on uh, exploiting cannabis uh, property, and so they use it, for instance, for the I, I mentioned that it affects uh, the memory, yeah, the short-term memory. And they use it uh, for uh, to treat PTS because this is a disturbance of short-term memory, PTS. And so they they, they experiment with uh, cannabis on uh, soldiers that are traumatized, that have a traumatism and that they cannot behave uh, or function properly. And so uh, cannabis seems to. So you see, there are many sh stuff we should do with it, but prohibition is not one of them. Right. Right. Um, you have a, uh, I don't know if it's an essay or a working paper, Emma. So cannabis, how to take control back. Uh, this is uh, talking more about France more specifically. So despite mm -hmm. having one of our, um, one of the most uh, repressive policies in Europe, you say, uh, France exhibits the largest cannabis consumption rates in the European Union, uh, particularly for minors. So the prohibition system promoted by France over the past 50 years has failed. Not only is it incapable of protecting the most vulnerable, like its youth, but it also weighs heavily on public finances while benefiting to criminal organizations. So this is really the crux of the problem here, right? As you were describing before, uh, prohibition is not the solution. Prohibition is actually a problem. <laughs> the question is what is sort of the optimum policy that you want to put in place? Well, it depends, I hope I, uh, I made that clear earlier. Um, it depends on what goal you want to achieve. In the case of France, clearly, one goal would be to clean the criminality. And the other goal, because we have this massive uh, usage of cannabis by underage uh, kids, I mean, they are starting to smoke at 12, 13. I mean, it's very early in France. Uh, and so, because of this uh, double problem, uh, I, I think we should aim for uh, a regulation of this market, so not the Colorado uh, free market type. Um, so, typically, what we recommend in this uh, in this document you mentioned, uh, that was written uh, for uh, the Prime Minister of France, uh, what we recommend is the creation of um, uh, a public monopoly for distribution, exactly like we have in France in tobacco. So tobacco is sold uh, by uh, private people, but under a, a, a license. And the license is granted by the government. It's a monopoly. So we, we believe it's the best uh, setting for France because the goal will be first to clean the market and second to control consumption of the yours because they shouldn't consume cannabis. And so we, we propose to create independent uh, shop selling nothing else but recreational cannabis so that it's easy for the police to control that uh, no kids in, enter this shop. They have nothing to do there. And uh, then we can collect some taxes. Um, and it will be uh, a good way to clean uh, the suburb of France, uh, of big city like Paris, that are totally uh, under the control of uh, uh, local uh, mafia that deal cannabis. Yeah, I wondered, you know, the, the control at the access point, um, sometimes it's not necessarily, kids are really creative. <laughs> they, you know, they can uh, get their hands on the stuff if they really want to. Uh, so I wonder, you know, sort of control at the access point is really going to do it. Um, but then you say, um, 
the, the, if you limit the number of access points, perhaps it is it is beneficial, right? Yes, so studies show, uh, not in France, because in France it's prohibited, but studies in the US and elsewhere show that legalization reduces the access of the, of the product to underage kids. Because here, right now in France, uh, we have uh, more than 5,000 uh, deal points. So it's huge. I mean, everywhere, I mean, I'm living in a rural area, uh, with low population density, there are several dealing points in my area. So my kids, uh, when they joined uh, school at 12, uh, there were a dealer in their in their school at 12 or 12, 11. I mean, this is the reality of France. Uh, but France is, a, is special, I guess. And so clearly it will be much better because all these uh, deal points, they exist because of the, the demand. And the demand is not really coming from the kids. The kids, they don't have a lot of money. The demand comes from the adults that... Uh, want to consume cannabis and that have the mean to pay for it. So if we take out all this demand, there will be far less, uh, there will be no, no, not much deal point uh, left uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the black market. And so in the legal one, it will be very hard for the kids to go because if the police do his, do his job, uh, it will be dangerous for the officine to sell drugs to the kid. And so whether we like it or not, it will be much harder for them to put their hand on it. I don't say it will be impossible, and certainly some of them will manage to have a big brother or a cousin or someone to buy it for them, but it will be much more challenging. Yeah, and obviously the, the alternative, uh, which is the illegal trade, um, that was some crime, that makes it freely available to anybody with with money. Uh, exactly, <laughs> uh, exactly. Trade, yeah. See, people that have psychiatric problems, they don't care. I mean, criminals, they don't care. And it's even worse than that. What we, we see uh, also is that these people usually, uh, if they sell cannabis, they can also sell cocaine, let's say. Okay, they are integrated. They are not distinguishing really the, the, the type of, of, of drugs they are selling. They sell whatever you want to buy. And so this is very dangerous because the kids, not only they are in contact with cannabis, which per se is not the worst uh, drug in terms of lethality, but also with other products that are super dangerous. And uh, that will not happen again in a system where cannabis is legalized because it will be uh, sold in dedicated shop without anything else, without cocaine, without uh, PCP or other uh, chemical drugs. So that will also reduce the availability of hard, uh, well, very dangerous, uh, very addictive drugs. Yeah, um, luckily, I think there's a general sense uh, that there's something wrong there. Prohibition is not the answer. Mm. Some, some policy uh, intervention is needed. Uh, I want to go into um, another area uh, that you have written um, widely about and a couple of papers more recently. Uh, skilled immigration, a visa for growth. Uh, you say compared to other OECD countries, immigration to France is low in skills, diversity, and volume. Yet a large body of economics research demonstrates the benefits of a skilled, diversified labor immigration in terms of innovation, entrepreneurship, integration into the global economy, and ultimately productivity growth. Uh, however, with this immigration policy based on family and humanitarian rights, France is not taking advantage of these opportunities. Um, yeah, U.S. has been uh, sort of very good at this, uh, at least last 50 years, <laughs> I would say. Uh, and um, 
And I think you talk about this in this paper or other paper. It's it's very difficult to figure out. Um, you know, there is a movement, let's say, from India or other developing countries into the U.S. Uh, there's a lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of economics created by a more recent arrivals uh, at the U.S. Uh, so, is there a sort of, perhaps there's a bias selection problem there in, in the sense that people who go there are more motivated, uh, perhaps, in some way. Uh, but you think about the OECD uh, more generally, those policies have been fairly constraining, right, compared to the U.S. for the I'm thinking, last 50 years, perhaps. Yes, yeah, so you're mentioning something which is very true uh, about, uh, and this is what we, we explain in the, in the note, huh, that is focus on France, um, again for the Prime Minister, so <laughs> this is for public policy in France. Uh, but um, what is very true in the US, but it is true elsewhere, interestingly enough, is that uh, uh, immigrants are overrepresented in entrepreneurs all over the world. Okay, so for instance, in the US, you have 13% of the population that is uh, coming from outside, so that is immigrant. They represent 25% of new firms. Uh, the, the immigrants are, are creating, uh, are representing the 25% of the new creation of firms. They are also representing 25% of the new patent in the US. So they are. They are, they are over-represented, we say in economics, so they are the double in terms of uh, their general representation of the population for uh, entrepreneurship and for innovation. Why it is that? So it is the same, in, we have this evidence in many countries, including developing countries. So for instance, if you go to Sub-Saharan Africa, you will be uh, stricken by the fact that entrepreneurs are very often foreigners. No, Lebanese, French, Chinese, etc. So they are over-represented again uh, in the population. It is not, and this is what we argue in the, in the note, and uh, behavioral studies show exactly that. It is not by luck. To be an immigrant, you have to be special. I mean, you have to be willing to leave all your base, your family, your support, your comfort, food, your comfort uh, relationship, and take huge risk because it's risky to, to go 8,000 kilometers away to be alone in a competitive country, in a hard country. Um, and and so you need to be uh, to la to love risk. I mean to have uh, at least an, a tolerance to risk that is bigger than uh, average citizen, average people that stay at home. And if you are qualified, this an inner characteristic and this individual characteristic that is very hard to spot. Uh, for instance, in the school system, because how do you spot risk risk lover or people that are able to take risk in the school system, we don't know. Huh? Uh, this very specific characteristic is super important to create new uh, new firms, because to create business, you have to take risk and to innovate, because again, you, you need to, to be willing to take risk. And so this is not for me at all a surprise that among uh, the general population in the US, immigrants are overrepresented in a patent holder and in a, a new business uh, creator. So that's that's normal. Uh, the problem of France, and that's true in many other countries. The problem of France uh, is that we have uh, we have had a discourse since the 80s. So uh, and even worse after the fall of, of the Berlin Wall. So the, the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s. We are, we had a discourse and political debate on immigration that were uh, really 
negative. So we compare the number of immigrants with the number of deaths on the road. I mean, that's that's exactly the way uh, we think about them. And um, and so the, the the conclusion, the pressure on, on politicians has been to cut everything they could cut in terms of volume of immigration. This is why the volume is low. And so what is left is what you cannot cut. What you cannot cut is family reunification. Uh, you have the right in, in the EU to bring your family uh, with you if you are living in a country legally. This is a right. Well, if you have a permanent status. And so that's one channel for immigration family reunification, and the other channel is humanitarian uh, immigration. Uh, we have a duty, uh, we, we sign international treaty as a country, France, to, to. So when you cut everything else, in particular when you cut labor immigration, you shouldn't be surprised at the people that come because our base immigration uh, that came after the Second World War to rebuild France is not very qualified. It's not very diversified. It comes from uh, North Africa and, uh, and Sub-Saharan Africa mainly. Uh, and these people, they were not engineers. They were uh, blue-collar workers. So their partner, in general, and we have uh, assortative matching, so their partners are also uh, relatively non-educated. And so what, what type of immigration we have? And we have an immigration uh, that is uh, not very much diversified, not very much qualified and very low in volume. This is the explanation. And we are missing all the benefits that the US, for instance, uh, has from a more diversified, more qualified, and larger uh, immigration. There's also a um, little bit of an environment and integration question, right? So when I came to the US uh, from India to go to graduate studies here, uh, I had a host family. Um, you know, they sort of let me into the <laughs> into the culture um, in a good way, um, and that happens um, that happens in major centers, perhaps in New York and Chicago, Silicon Valley, and so you know, in some sense, U.S. is set up or has been set up in these major centers to attract skills and talent that way. Uh, going back to France, sort of a policy question here. Suppose France were to change its policy. Uh, do you think it can it, it can uh, sort of provide that infrastructure integration mechanism for 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 immigrants? Well, uh, we have a long tradition in France of immigration. Surprisingly, maybe for you, but. Uh, uh, so when they did the survey some years back, 25% uh, of the French population had a grandparent that were born foreigner in a foreign country. Uh, so that was an immigrant, very clearly. Um, so uh, we and that makes sense. Huh? We we used to be a dominion power, so we were used to to have a lot of contact and movement with the outside world. Um, we use we used to we use and we are still a very uh, successful economy. We are the sixth in terms of GDP in the world, although we are only 67 million. So I mean we are uh, we have been a big power, economic power, and we are still one. So big power usually are open. Huh? I mean they uh, so and um, and also if you remember uh, the the time during the the, the second the, the two war uh, france was really the center of the world i mean all the people that were victim of discrimination in the us 
due to apartheid and uh, to low, discriminatory law. They were coming to Paris. All the Jews that were victims of pogrom in the East, they were coming to Paris. Uh, we had a lot of refugees from Latin America. So uh, we are a melting pot, actually. It's not true. But the problem is that over the last 40 years, we totally forgot our story, uh, our history. We closed border for, I think, political reason mainly, and we, we froze the baby with the water was because <laughs> now um, we are in a vicious circle. We have no benefit or not the main benefit that other countries can have. What you mentioned is very interesting. France is the second country on earth for uh, students, foreign students. Uh, the first one, uh, sorry, the first country for non-English speaking uh, study in the world. Uh, so we host every year the 300,000 students, which is uh, not bad for our size. Uh, and uh, we plan, uh, Macron plan to, to move this uh, figure uh, up to half million. Um, and this is a good way to attract and to integrate people. Because if you study somewhere, well, you will make friends. You will learn the culture by uh, interaction. Uh, in general, we all have fond memory of our studies, so we like the country. I mean, it's very hard not to remember where, uh, I mean, it's, these are nice years usually. Um, and so you can have a first relationship at this stage of your of your life, private uh, love, maybe. So all these things happen um, naturally, and that's a way to, 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 to get to know a country, its culture, and to love it. Or not, maybe you might want to leave. But if, and so I think it's a very smart way to attract uh, talent and also to be a, a bit sure about the, the level of their study because when you come from certain type of country, it's very hard to know if the diploma are really good or crap. That's, you know that in India there are a lot of very top school, but also uh, there are quite a few that are crappy and it's from outsider maybe it's not so clear. So that's that's the type of thing we do. But you are right, the US is a magnet for smart people because the best research center in the world are there. So if you want really to go to a top school and to have a top education, especially at the graduate level, well, there is no brainer here. You should go to the US, I mean, MIT, uh, NYU, Chicago, whatever, I mean, Berkeley, Stanford. I mean, this is really, uh, and so that's true that uh, the population that, but uh, um, I want to stress that uh, unqualified population contribute to growth too. They don't create uh, necessarily big firms. They don't create, of course, or less, uh, they don't innovate. But, for instance, they, um, they help uh, women, for instance, qualify women. And you know that in OECD country, uh, the US, France uh, is part of that, 60% of graduates from the university are women. So when these people cannot work because of family constraints, kids, etc., it's a loss for productivity and growth. What studies show is that having unqualified immigration helps this woman to go back on the, on the job market because they have someone at home to take care of the kids, for instance. So that's, so even, uh, even unqualified immigration, and, and typically unqualified um, or with low skills, low skill migrants, they, they, um, they occupy a job that uh, national don't want, like picking fruit and vegetable, um, or working in a restaurant at night, or doing uh, uh, taking care of sick people at home, etc. So they do a lot of work that uh, most people prefer not to do because they want to, to be with their family during um, the night or during uh, vaca uh, having vacation, decent wage, promotion. And so all this type of hard work with low pay 
um, typically um, immigrants are feeding them, and that's good for growth too. Yes, I, I didn't look at all the data, Emma, but uh, it's really fascinating. Um, you say France has a long history of immigration and people coming from all over the world. And last maybe 20, 30 years, it had a, a change in policy. And it doesn't take it doesn't take too much. It just takes maybe one president, one prime minister, uh, some slight policy tangent, and you end up in a completely different spot 20 years later, right? Um, I mean, we, we are going through a little bit of that situation in the US now. We mm. had a recent president who doesn't seem to understand anything, I think. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so I will you, not contradict you on that. <laughs> uh, so if you make, you know, even, even, even though it's not a drastic policy change, it seems like on the margin, small changes, but in 20, 30 years, you could go on that tangent and end up in a completely different spot. So going back to France again, you are saying that immigration policy now is fundamentally driven by family and humanitarian rights, which is not a bad thing, but then it doesn't definitely doesn't give you that skills-based um, people coming into the country, right? Uh, no, yes, you, you're right. Uh, in the US also, visa, uh, for family is a very important uh, uh, way to, to, to increase immigration. Huh? Uh, so in general, when you give a visa for uh, uh, labor to one person, you get two huh? in general, in, on average. So that's, that's also a, a, a tool in the US or in Canada. But the, the difference in, um, in the US is that the, uh, the population, the, immigration, the immigrant population in the US is already very diversified. So this mechanism just make uh, the immigration mechanically diversified. In France, the problem we have is that our base, base immigration, immigrant uh, population is not very diversified in terms of origin. So mechanically, you just reinforce the, if you, you just use this channel, you mechanically increase the, the number of people that come from exactly the same, um, the same place. In the US, for instance, very few people know that, but uh, the green card lottery, which is very famous, huh, uh, it is a lottery, it is a, a mechanism to increase diversity. Huh? So you you can apply if your, uh, your country didn't send less uh, or more than 50,000 people over the last X year, then you can apply. So it's really a mechanism to, uh, it's in fact, one of the few countries on, the, on Earth that has a mechanism to ensure that diversity is there in terms of immigration, which is very good. Um, I think France, uh, what happened also uh, to us, huh? um, and we see that in many different ways, is that when you have a very strong anti-immigrant discourse, political discourse, national political discourse, because it's uh, both left and right that are somehow uh, validating this anti-immigrant uh, policy, then uh, what you lose first is the elite. Uh, are the very highly educated people, the rich ones, they are mobile, they can go elsewhere. If you don't want me, I don't come. Okay, that's fine. I, mean, I, I prefer to go somewhere where I am welcome in the US. If you have uh, talent, uh, you will get a, a visa, you will be welcome. Um, or if you have a lot of money, you will have a special visa for investor. You are welcome. Okay. 
in, it's very hard when you have this, um, and that's why Trump, I think, did a mistake eh, by saying oh, so uh, loudly that immigrants were bad or criminal. You create an environment that is not so welcoming for other migrants, the ones you are supposed to, to target. Uh, the, the UK is a very good example. The Brexit eh, was uh, one of the main arguments for the Brexit was to, con to, to get back the control of the border and to get rid of this uh, flow of immigrants. Well, they lost a lot of um, uh, high-skilled immigrants. They lost a lot of professors at the university. They lost a lot of uh, uh, traders and, and bankers. If you have the choice, you go elsewhere. You don't want to be in a country where you are not welcome, uh, if you have the choice. If you have no choice, of course, you are stuck. But So I think that's why the policy of France needs to change. We need to change the way we talked about this topic also on the outside. So me, I am in favor of uh, a system like Canada that has a, because right now in France, you have no channel, uh, not at all, to apply to a visa just to come and work, uh, unless you are exceptional. So unless you're Einstein or, I mean, or you have a fantastic, uh, you, are, uh, you have a lot of money and you want to create a new enterprise, of course, then maybe you can come. But otherwise, and the, we have no regular channel for regular uh, economic immigration. Uh, the only way you can do it is that a firm say, oh, I, I, I don't find the talent I need, so I, I need to import it from outside. Uh, but uh, this is not a good way to do. Canada has a system with a visa and point, and uh, so you can apply online. It's very transparent, and uh, if you have enough points, it doesn't mean you will get the visa, but of course, it is a, it, it sends you a strong signal that you might get it. Yeah, on the positive side, um, as as you mentioned, uh, when you have a negative policy, um, it uh, it sort of builds up on it on itself. Uh, it could be on the positive side too. Perhaps slight course corrections in another direction uh, can get you back to where where you were 20, 25 years ago. It, it doesn't take that long uh, with a concerted effort in that direction, right? Oh, no, I think you're right. That's why me, I am a, an optimistic and that's why I wrote this report. Huh? It's just to, to warn my, uh, my, uh, my fellow citizens of France that we are, uh, we are really throwing the baby with the water bath, that we are in a vicious circle, that we lose point of growth because we are just uh, discouraging entrepreneurs and innovators to join us. Um, and so we need to change that. But I think we can, of course, we can uh, simply putting in place a, a system with a, a point for visa, uh, increasing the number of students we host in France, etc., making an effort to welcome them. And the, go the actual government did that and they created a label which is Bienvenue in France, Welcome in France. Um, the university need to apply to get this label, but they get it only if they have they are meeting a certain number of requirements in terms of the quality of the the, the accompaniment that will give the, the migrant um, student. So there, there are efforts made to make France more attractive, and uh, I certainly hope they will um, they will deliver on, on their promise. So I want to finish up with uh, another paper that you have just came out: uh, Women in Economics, Europe and the World. Uh, you say based on a data set that we collected from the top research institutions in economics around the globe, including universities, business schools, and other organizations such as central banks, we document the underrepresentation of women in economics. 
this has always been an issue. Um, and, and again, I didn't look at the data uh, very, um, very deeply. Uh, but it seems like it's a global, it's globally consistent, right? It's not just one country, it's not just one one area. They all seem to have this problem all around the world. So yes, um, there are many studies uh, that show that uh, women are discriminated in economics. Uh, it's interesting because it's not the case uh, elsewhere. I mean, there are very um, few other fields where women are discriminated. So what do I mean by discriminated? And it's very, it's a bit subtle for um, average audience because it's not underrepresentation of women that means discrimination. Uh, in mathematics, women are underrepresented, but they are not discriminated. So if you are a mathematician and you publish well, uh, and uh, then you will get your promotion. You will get, you will be promoted to full professor, for instance. Um, and when you run regression, so this is a way to estimate uh, the impact of gender on promotion, in the mathematical equation, you find no impact of gender dummy. So it means if you try to, to predict who gets the promotion, the fact to be a man or a woman has no uh, predictive power. What matters is the number of publications. So there are very few women, but if they work as well as a man, they will be promoted as a man. There is no difference there. In economics, and studies show that uh, with the same observable, uh, so the number of publications, the PhD vintage, the number of citations you get, etc., the number of quarters, well, women have 20% less chance to be uh, promoted. So if you run the same regression, the gender dummy will be extremely uh, significant because uh, it tells you that women uh, are not playing the same game as men in this in this respect, they are uh, they have a lower chance to be promoted. So this uh, is something that, uh, of course, uh, many women are concerned about, uh, many economist women. And uh, very interestingly, this field of gender studies that used to be uh, some kind of a niche that was a bit uh, exotic, uh, uh, not mainstream at all, has become, because of these new powerful women that are now doing uh, economics at the top level, has become more uh, of, uh, of mainstream. The movement Me Too also contributes uh, to this interest. And uh, the advantage we have as economists is that we can study ourselves. So that's that's great. Um, so what what do we we know? And we know quite a few uh, things. For instance, very interesting papers uh, from um, a graduate from Harvard show that um, the women are penalized if they work in team in economics. So. Uh, if you look again at the probability to get tenure, so to be uh, promoted as a full professor in an uni any university, the number of, uh, of quarters doesn't matter for men. So if you write a paper alone or if you write a paper in a pair of two or in a pair of three, for a man, the impact on the decision to, to, to give you tenure huh, uh, is, uh, is the same. So each paper weights the same. For women, on the other hand, if you work in team, so if you have more quarters, especially if these quarters are male, then the probability to get tenure is lower. These publications uh, are not uh, uh, are not uh, accounted in the same way. Uh, they are discounted for women. The reason, and I can see why, uh, because I'm sitting in committee, well, you know, we have an identification problem. We don't know exactly what was the contribution of the woman in this uh, in these particular things, maybe 
maybe the senior economist did everything extra. So there are implicit assumption that women are incompetent or less competent. Or, um, and so that's another piece of, uh, of evidence. Uh, the, the behavior of uh, also of colleagues in seminar has been pointed out by a very good economist. Another study that I like a lot, um, and that is a bit scary, I think, is about a young, uh, young girl, uh, young woman that was not yet in PhD. And what she did, there is this um, website uh, that is called uh, Econ uh, John Market Rumor. So this is a place where you get information, off information, not on, uh, on the position on the job market. So, so you know here, I don't know, the position is uh, targeted towards this and that, etc. So you have a lot of soft uh, information that is useful when you, you start your career. And so what she did, she web scrapped all the posts and she applied machine, uh, she identified the topic, uh, the, the subject of the post, is it a woman or is it a man? Ma'am, of course, there are economists, all of them. And then she applied machine learning to, so no, nothing subjective and something really systematic to the content of the post. And this is very disturbing because the world that come uh, most often when we, we talk about a woman in this post are sexual uh, teat and anal and sexy and hot and whatever. I mean, nothing professional. When the post is about a man, then the world are much more uh, professional. And that's very disturbing because we are talking about young scholars. I mean, people that are 25 years old, I mean, the future of the profession. Um, so yes, there are some concern about um, about the uh, gender equality in this uh, profession, and it's not universal. It's really something specific to economics, to economics, sorry. Uh, and so that's a bit of a puzzle for me. Yeah, you, um, you talk about the leaky pipeline, um, which is sort of the symptom, right? So the number of PhDs um, appears to be, uh, so I can't remember, 37, 38%. Yeah, you, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's vary between uh, one third and forty uh, percent, depending on. But in OECD country, uh, it's really uh, roughly one third, let's say. But when you look at that whole pyramid, so to speak, uh, from uh, postdoc to lecturer to assistant professor to associate professor to tenured associate professor to full professor, uh, we seem to lose uh, that that ratio appears to get narrower and narrower, women to men ratio. Yes, that's that's exactly why I was mentioning the tenure uh, things, because if you are not evaluated fairly, or at least like uh, your male colleague, already you start with less women, but if on the top of everything you, you add. Um, so you have to, here we have to be a bit uh, more precise. I mean, women in economics publish less than men on average, okay? So here again, this is not because there are, uh, there are not uh, as many women uh, as uh, at the top as at the bottom, that it's a sign of discrimination per se. What is troubling me is not that there are not 33% of men that are full professor. If they don't publish uh, uh, as many papers as men, then it's, it's, it's okay. Huh? Maybe we, we, we need to, 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 to see why, but but what bothers me is that if they publish the same volume of um, paper and if they publish well and uh, they, are, uh, they get citation and everything, the same level of citation, they are, there will be not, uh, well, there will be discriminated in this sense that they will get tenure less often. 
Yeah, I mean, we see the same, as you know, we see the same effect in the industry. We see the same effect in, in governments and organizations. I wrote a book about this in 2009 called Flexibility. Not many people bought it, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it is sort of a club effect, isn't it? Um, and so, you know, when you are in the club, it becomes a lot easier uh, to go further. Uh, and you can see this, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not suggesting anything. Uh, symptomatically, there's concentrations in Nobel laureates in mm -hmm. economics in certain universities and so on and so forth. And they all tend to be men. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and so Nobel committees, perhaps, I, I haven't looked at it. Uh, there may be a concentration of men there also. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Corporate boards, uh, almost exclusively men in many companies. Mm -hmm. So... Sometimes, you know, people don't quite understand there is a problem there, even though it is staring, staring you at your face. They just don't get it. No, that's true. I mean, uh, but it's it's a complex problem, huh? to be honest. Uh, uh, what puzzled me, um, but maybe I'm, I am in a too big hurry, huh? is that, as I, as I said earlier, 60% huh, of graduates uh, from university are women. And it has been like that over the last uh, roughly 40 years, huh? so 30 years. Um, in 2008, for the first time in the US, the unemployment curve of the men was above the one of the women. And why? Because they have less diploma. They are there are less skills. And so for the first time, uh, women have better job and so they, they keep it. So I think there is something going on. For me, the movement Me Too is not an accident. It's really this massive uh, high skill women that are everywhere that are not going to take it anymore, <laughs> the crap that they used to take in society, and they want to be recognized for what they do. Um, but it's true that uh, at the top level, it's it's uh, it's it's hard to, uh, to 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 see the progress sometimes. Um, also, uh, we have to pay attention. I mean, I don't like the fact that there are 50% of women. There should be 50% of women at the top position. It depends on what you did, right? I mean, it's it's there is a it's not democracy. It's a firm. It's, it's something that you need to be productive. Uh, so me, I have nothing against um, productivity measure, but I think it's what is really a source of concern is when this productivity measure leads to different results um, when they are identical. I mean, this is not normal. That's discrimination. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Emma. Thanks so much for spending time with me. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. Thank you.